menstruation is normal, free universal access to tampons, pads and reusable options should be normal too. Virtually every systemic institution, be it school or the workplace, were built around the natural functionality of men. It's a hidden problem, an unknown crisis. It's one of the most important human rights issues of our time. To end period poverty. Period poverty. It's period poverty. Welcome to series two of Periodic Chats. I'm your host, Ellen. We've got a really exciting series lined up and some brilliant new additions to the hosting team. Christina and Sarah will be co-hosting with me. My name is Sarah and I'm really looking forward to co-hosting alongside Ellen and Christina. Here at Periodic Chats, we are creating discussions that will be able to educate others on ourselves further. And so I'm really excited to be a part of a podcast, a space that we will be able to create a conversation that can contribute towards changes and movements that are happening within our communities. Hello, I'm Christina, I'm a poet and storyteller, passionate for systemic change when it comes to global menstrual health and educating myself on all the ways we can get there together. Now that everyone's introduced, let's get straight into episode one with our first guest, Lucy Russell. Lucy has a vast experience working throughout the youth and girls' rights sectors campaigning for menstrual equity and has come to talk to us about cultural perceptions both globally and within the UK. I, my first kind of major t- turning point was into human rights and kind of social justice. And I can remember being really quite young and seeing uh, the massacre at Tiananmen Square and watching those protesters just stand in front of the tanks because what they believed in was so important. And for me, that level of injustice to turn tanks onto individuals was so horrific. I I just felt I had to kind of act and take part. But, you know, I I lived in kind of South Birmingham. There wasn't a lot of activism going on there. So it's also quite hard to find where you belong and where you get to. But really, gender equality sort of crept up on me, I think. I started to learn about what was happening globally globally. And you saw the kind of charity information about things like female genital mutilation, about women having to carry water for miles and miles for the whole family and about kind of uh, gender based violence. But it took longer for me to reflect back and ask whether gender oppression happened in my own life, because although, you know, kind of sexual assault, uh, being groped on public transport, poor sexual health services, girls being categorised as good girls and bad girls by teachers, you know, all of these stereotypes. That for me was just normal. That was just life. And it took a much longer time for me to turn it around and say, hang on, when we talk about gender equality, we keep talking about other people. Why don't you look at yourself in your own community and ask some questions about why is that acceptable? And I think it's just, it's so ingrained. It took a long time for, for me to ask questions of my own community. And then in terms of work, I think I'm just really lucky. I think that's the the key answer to that is just being able to find jobs that I absolutely love and being able to kind of fight for gender equality professionally, as well as then carry it on in the evenings and weekends. And so to begin in the UK, in your opinion, how have the cultural perceptions changed and 
especially looking in the last 20 years, how do you think they've developed? I think, again, it is actually part of that kind of creeping up on you. Um, I remember being really into my kind of feminism and I, I was reading a lot of Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and thought they were amazing and, you know, was really into those issues. But at the same time, you know, I had some kind of secret tampons maybe hidden in my school bag and you had to hide them to go into the toilets. And, you know, one of the worst things that could possibly happen was that your bag got tipped out and people saw that you got period products in it. So that level of shame was so strong. But at the same time, I never, ever associated that with periods. I've been really fortunate. I was at a conference um, a couple of weeks ago and Judy Bloom, the, the incredible famous international author, was there speaking. And she was talking about her book, The 1970, um, Are You There? Uh, uh, God, It's Me, Margaret. And that was all about growing up adolescence periods. And she said, you know, back in the 70s, nobody talked about periods. It wasn't a done conversation in public. But you and your friends who were kind of entering their first periods, that's all you talked about. And so that kind of difference, I think, is one of the really interesting changes. And really, you know, I think things are changing for some people and for some people, they're not changing at all. And so we're at a point where people are in very different places, depending on who they are, what they're hearing, what kind of conversations they're having. Um, it's a really interesting point, that actually, of that kind of one sided silence. But also that that I remember it when I first started my period. Um, I was lucky enough to have a really supportive family and that we it was just really open. Um, but also that kind of excitement, like oh, it's it's happened um, and I'm telling all my friends and we're all swapping like little um, like makeup bags that we used to keep our period products in. And it was just really exciting. And so it's it's nice now that there is starting to be a kind of crossover but like you say, in you know, changing quite a lot for some people, um, and still struggling to change for for others. It, it absolutely. I had so much fun. Um, friend of mine, we went. We were meant to be practicing a play for primary school, and uh, we must have been about ten. And instead, we raided the cupboard under the sink for of her mum's stuff, and we found tampons. So we started chucking the tampons into the sink to watch them expand because we couldn't believe this happened. We got in so much trouble because, of course, they're so expensive. <laughs> But it's that kind of like fascination, you know, they were, nobody talked about them, nobody explained. We, we'd had one little booklet about tampons and that was it. And so you just wanted to know so much, but it didn't feel like anything was out there. It felt like it was going to remain a secret and you were just going to have to steal tampons and find out what happens. <laughs> yeah, I remember all of that. <laughs> so out of all of the kind of interesting roles you've you've worked as, um, the deputy co-chair of the Period po Poverty Task Force in the UK stands out to us. Could you describe the role you had and the goals for the task force? Well, I was really lucky to be part of the Plan International team who were kind of representing, if you like, civil society. So representing people who were campaigning um, for an end to period poverty. And it, it was a pretty positive situation to be in because um, when I started the period campaigns at Plan, one of the first things we did was research and involved a lot of fantastic experts um, from across Europe 
to look at that big picture of period poverty. And one of the things we identified was that actually period poverty is only part about the money. So not being able to afford products, products being high priced was one big issue, but actually not knowing about how your body works, not knowing about what products were available, not having the education and information was another part of that poverty. It held you back because you couldn't make informed decisions. And what we called it was a toxic trio of period poverty because the third factor was the stigma and taboo. So not only did you not know, but you couldn't actually ask people either because you were so ashamed. And so what was really fantastic about that task force was that it brought in kind of corporate people, so people who made period products and people who dealt with things like hygiene. It brought in groups that you might not immediately think of. So say, for example, Sport England to look at kind of sport, physical health, exercise and periods as well. And so it was looking at really different aspects. And then the civil society groups were brilliant because you had people who specialised in uh, refugees and asylum seekers or people who looked at the needs of homeless women. And that kind of really nice, diverse voice was bringing in that kind of taboo and education information. And so when groups came together and were able to tackle that toxic trio, you really started to feel there was a shift around period poverty. That is honestly, it sounds like a fascinating role. Um, And like you say, it's great. Um, Companies like Plan International are focusing on all aspects because um yeah education is such a key point to it because like you say without without it you can't be making the decision kind of need to be made exactly that brings us into the next question really well actually which so our parent company we work for gift wellness has had quite a battle with the government to get people to just understand that period poverty is a really important issue and that it is a crisis that is happening especially in the UK and worldwide. So how have you found it personally navigating that and getting the people that you work with and in your positions getting them to understand that it's a public health issue and a crisis we need to tackle? I've been really fortunate because I was able to commission research So we got some expert academics to go out and talk directly to young people and say, in the UK, what's happening? What's your experience? Because we found that the press were covering a lot of stories about period poverty and it had become this kind of hot topic. But when you looked through what was being said, those who were having periods and particularly young women weren't there there was just no voices. So there was this huge gap around what what does it actually feel like? Uh, What is period poverty? And that's where we drew that conclusion that you had this kind of three-pronged issue around period poverty. We realised it was much broader and much deeper. But what was really useful was being able to interview young people. It made it very clear that, first of all, yes, it's definitely happening. It's very real. And secondly, it helped us identify what needs to change. So we had this brilliant idea and um, Mandu Reed was the person who came up with the idea was uh, to call it a menstrual manifesto. And it was, what do we need to call for change? And that was really exciting because it said, we've got to improve sex and relationships education. We've got to remove the taxes on products. We've got to talk openly. And we need things like politicians and leaders to talk about periods as normal, everyday, healthy, kind of physical body 
um, occurrences, not hide it and shroud it in taboo. And so that was a great way of talking about it. But the whole period poverty movement was just phenomenal. You know, you'd got people taking a red box into their local school. You got an MP who stood up and said that she was menstruating at the moment. You'd got kind of five or six MPs turned up to a big protest at Whitehall saying things have got to change. It was brilliant. And that kind of really broad spectrum of lots of different voices was one of the things that really shifted the conversation. And I think that's probably true of a lot of campaigns. You've got to have lots of different voices pointing in the same direction, saying the same thing, but in really different ways. And that's what makes it really effective. So from my perspective, I would say that's what shifted government was that you got to the point where the mainstream press covered it journalists in kind of key lifestyle kind of magazines tv programs were covering it there were lots of case studies there was good research and there was a big joined up voice so whether you were working with local Sikh temples in um, London or whether you were a major corporate making cutting-edge films about it all those voices were talking about it so that massive movement for change was what was so incredibly powerful in the UK. Thank you so much for taking us through all of that. It definitely sounds like everything happened in a way that just forced them to listen. So they had no choice but to accept that it needed to change. Absolutely. Best kind of campaign. <laughs> keep, keep making your point until it, <laughs> until it gets heard. Absolutely. Until they listen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so I, I think that's kind of covered the next question about in layman's terms, how do we go about tackling the stigma across the society as wide and div- uh, and diverse as the UK. We kind of just covered that. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I guess, uh, yeah, we, we can still talk about that wonderful diversity of voice because I get, guess, you know, you can't change people's opinions if you're trying to change all the opinions at once with one message. It doesn't work. And I think that is what's so powerful about You know, if you look into kind of tackling period taboo, you can find some really cutting edge art where people kind of do theatre performances and throw around blood and really challenge ideas. But to some people, that's totally no, no, cannot happen. And, uh, you know, you've also got some examples, really good practice in the classroom where you offer young people proper, sensible explanations about how their body works. And you go beyond that kind of human being cut in half diagram. And you talk about real life, about pain management, about what products you want to use. So it it works in so many different levels. And somebody else is going to be much happier reading a kind of a low key article in a newspaper, because that's the level that they're at. And I think the more we look at the movement, the more we all need to kind of make space for those more diverse conversations. So, you know, I I mentioned before kind of Binti periods and their amazing work in temples. Um, Another amazing project is by Bloody Good Period, which is called Decolonising Menstruation. And that is looking at both the kind of layers of race and of kind of colonial perspectives that are being embedded into stigma and taboos against indigenous black and pe- uh, women and people of colour as they menstruate. And so those kind of multiple voices, that's what really tackles the taboo, is making sure that we meet everyone where they're at and make sure the conversation comes from their perspective, not just kind of sit on a pedestal and say, I know the answer and we've all got to do this. <laughs> yes. 
we are going to return back to global discussion just because obviously that is hugely important and we do want to cover it. I do have a quick question, which so also including your period poverty work, you've also done a lot of sexual education, sexual health work. And could you briefly touch upon how important teaching sexual education actually is when it comes to period stigma and making sure that the information that children are given isn't contributing to any stigma and is sort of helping to make them feel so much more comfortable? Absolutely. Good quality sex and relationships education, or globally, a lot of people call it comprehensive sexuality education, is an absolute cornerstone. As I said, you don't tackle the toxic trio of period poverty if you don't tackle education and information. And we, we always have to remember that young people don't live in a vacuum. They are exposed to lots of different pieces of information, um, you know, including around bodies and periods. But the vast majority of information that's out there at the moment is still myth and it's still covered in taboos and stigma. And so education to cut through that is absolutely essential. And it's not just about the education itself, but the fact that if you say periods are a sensible, normal part of the curriculum, they're how you learn about your body and your reproductive health, that is okay for children to learn, you're actually shifting the dial massively because you're putting it alongside how do my lungs work? How does my bladder work? All of those essential things that you need to learn in biology, it puts it in there. And then it should also put it in the kind of personal health and social context where you talk about how does it make me feel? What are, what's happening to me during puberty? All of those issues need to be addressed as well. And so that's a kind of a core part but I guess we can also look at, you know, as we're looking globally, we also really need to talk about the big picture of there are still so many girls who aren't allowed to go to school because they're menstruating or are stopped from going to school because they cannot afford or access the products and they will be too shamed and too humiliated to go to school. COVID-19 has caused the biggest crisis in access to education. It's absolutely unprecedented. And I've been very fortunate to be working with grassroots activists all around the world. Um, so, you know, we're talking to people in Ethiopia, Nigeria, Brazil, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the lo loss of girls' education is huge. And then if you look at the impact of having a period in a country where periods are seen as dirty, where you can't access products, it's knocking girls back even further and reducing their access to school. So that's another layer that comprehensive sexuality education adds, is it says that we will help girls manage periods, which includes helping them access school. So there's so much in there. It sounds like just one topic on a busy curriculum. It's not, it's much bigger than that. It really is a cornerstone and something that has to change for there to be kind of menstrual equity globally. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, I just, I, I recently, my, my little sister's in school um, and I I was homeschooled, so I didn't experience the, the kind of sex ed classes um, that some of my friends had. Um, but I was really interested. So I was asking my sister, so how, how are they going and, and what are they teaching in it? And she was like, oh, it was kind of like a, 
10 minute lesson where we were told about tampons and um and you know the boys were kind of making fun and the girls were getting really embarrassed and the teacher was embarrassed and it's it's just kind of like you say it should be just part of the the biology of of how a body works absolutely um yeah your 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 siblings were very accurate from what i hear from young people about your age you know you weren't missing anything it was so poor (laughs) we heard you know we heard a lot about um sort of non-binary and trans young people feeling completely excluded we heard about um girls telling us that that you might be given this kind of diagram of your body but you weren't told what it feels like to have a period you 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 weren't told about period pain um and you know just simple tips like you know there are certain medications that you can take to manage pain and you weren't told what's normal as in you might feel a few cramps and unwell and what's seriously unwell so you know things like endometriosis were never addressed and so there was no way of understanding what's a healthy period we had examples of head teachers um, in religious schools banning a conversation around tampons because they didn't want any discussion of the vagina or any kind of acknowledgement that it existed we came across stories of um, the girls and boys being separated and then the boys being sent to run around the football field whilst the girls learned about periods rather than offering a nice male space to understand and explore the issue which would be a very positive thing it was like no no boys don't get polluted by this nasty dirty topic go and get some fresh air and that'll sort you out <laughs> so these attitudes were so poor and young people uh, this this research is called breaking the barriers it's a couple of years old now but it's still so true young people just said tell us about real life you know, uh, boys want to know about periods. They will have women in their lives, whether it's family members, partners, children that they'll look after. You know, it, it doesn't kind of exclude them. They want to know how bodies work. How do you support someone who's down? What happens with your mental health when you're feeling really low? All these issues need talking about. And young people were just like, please, please tell us about the real life side of periods. We're, we're just asking for this straightforward information. And this is, you know, this is supposed to be new decade, new ideas, and we're still so behind on it. But we're, we're moving forward slowly. So hopefully things will keep improving. Yeah, hopefully. It is quite horrifying just thinking about the lack of it and how little we know and how little people are still taught it. It's just difficult to think about knowing what that ends up doing because obviously that lack of education in the, in the beginning then leads to so much discomfort. And like, it's a very much a ripple effect. Definitely. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> right. So on a slightly more global scale now, we have found that women in Japan, Thai, Taiwan, Indonesia, South Korea and um, Zambia are entitled to a few days off per month for period pain. Are there any other initiatives or policies in other countries around the world that you're slightly jealous of or think would work well in the UK for women, trans and non-binary people? I'm, I'm sure there's many, many more that I don't even know about, but certainly I do think menstrual leave is, is just a great idea. You know, I don't know anyone who hasn't had at least one or two periods that 
have left them doubled over in pain. You know, I personally definitely remember being floored as a teenager. I remember just lying on the bathroom almost unconscious with the pain. And yet the idea was just try and get back up and try and get on with your day. It's just a period. What are you complaining about? So that is a really positive thing. Um, I guess I would love to see um, a new approach to building toilets. That would be just one of the most fantastic things. So stop building the toilets that we build all the time at the moment. I just cannot believe that you go into a new build, say like a service station, and there still isn't a proper space for the uh, sanitary products disposal area. It's still crammed in and there still aren't sinks in cubicles. Build toilets with, with proper bins and with sinks in the cubicle so that people can manage their periods, whoever they are, and they can do it in a way that suits them best. At the moment, toilet design in Britain is just all about men and shoving bins in the corner and sinks on the outside is just about treating women as the problem, the thing that doesn't really need addressing. So would love to see that change. And, you know, I guess it would be quite interesting to learn from some of the cultures that celebrate periods more meaningfully and in greater depth. Um, I know that some people are adopting it in the UK and in the global north, but still it's pretty secret. And yet it is, you know, it's a real turning point in uh, a young person's life, that kind of becoming um, one of the first stages of adolescence, puberty, changing their bodies. And actually, you know, healthy periods starting in adolescence uh, are generally an indication that your reproductive system is kind of getting going so actually there's a lot of positive about that and you know healthy bodies doing their healthy thing and yet it's still so shrouded so that would be nice just a little celebration just a little marking the moment I had some friends recently their daughter turned 18 and they took her to buy alcohol legally for the first time and so you know why not well, it's it's nice to mark these things. Let's let's mark periods. Let's have a little bit of a party. Get rid of uh, you know gender reveal cakes and let's have a bit of a period reveal cake with a big giant cake tampon. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, that would be great. Um, yeah, because if if you're celebrating it again, it's a, it's another way of kind of cutting down on that stigma because you know you're talking about it and and you're excited about it. Absolutely. And and why not have it as a kind of, you know, nice little celebration, maybe a bit of pampering for someone who starts their period and also just create a safe space that says any questions you want to ask, any things you want to understand, you know, buy some books with some information in it, you know, that kind of thing would be just ideal. So yeah, I'd love to see that. Yeah, definitely. Just completely, completely agreed. It's kind of teaching that it's normal and welcome from the get go. With this being such a dire issue worldwide, is there a framework of understanding or a lens that you find helpful to understand the issue in more of a global context? I, I guess I would say it is about gender inequality. And so I hope I don't get too kind of academic and technical, but I would say that for me, the absolute core root of discrimination around menstruation is discrimination based on gender and based on the male body being the norm and the acceptable and the female body um, being different and being dirty and being wrong because it's not the male body. 
And really, if you look at that right at the heart of it, that is where all of the taboos come from. So menstrual blood is dirty. Uh, you know, there's kind of cultural taboos around uh, menstruating women can't be in the house or they can't prepare food or they can't pick crops. There's so many different things and it is all around kind of being polluting and dirty when actually we know that menstrual blood is exactly what it should be, where it should be. It should be leaving through the vagina and that is a sign of a healthy cycle. So, yeah, I think that's probably the strongest lens. And I think it's it's really helpful for us, whether you're kind of well, whatever topic you're looking at, actually discrimination around menstruation is part of gender oppression and it's a very particular kind of discrimination and of course if you look at a lot of different intersectional issues you will find that there are more layers in that so for example refugee and um, asylum seeking women are discriminated against as people of colour as people who don't have secure status and probably are living in poverty in the UK but they'll also experience period poverty and they'll experience discrimination around their menstruation. So, you know, wherever you start from, you need to add a lot of lenses to deeply understand it. But I think gender does sort of start off in a good place. And I guess it's about seeing it on a really big kind of continuum, if you like. So whether it's, um, say, we found examples of girls not being allowed to go to the toilet in the UK and when they had their periods and they needed to change a pad, that's a really kind of, you know, people say that's small as light, but actually it's menstrual discrimination. And at the other end of the scale, um, I could give you an example of uh, women in custody in the USA who uh, are humiliated or strip searched, um, who have been refused period products uh, despite needing them as part of their incarceration. And so that humiliation and degradation as part of menstruation oppression, that's all on the same continuum. It looks really different in every cultural context, but it is about using women's bodies to treat them as unequal citizens. And so I guess that's the kind of the really big picture lens I'd use. Thank you for taking us through that. It all sounds insanely important. And again, it's another it's another one of those topics that I hadn't realised was a thing. I mean, in in jail or in uh, yeah prison setting, you wouldn't expect that level of of oppression and of kind of an, another way of controlling um, women and and people that menstruate that. It's that's really shocking to hear that even in supposedly a very educated country, things like that are still going on. Yeah, it's um, the the cases that I've come across are in the USA of um, how women are being treated, and there's some really good academia kind of looking into that. But I don't think there's even been enough research in the UK to find out what's happening. So there's also these completely dark spaces where we just have no information about how women, for example, in, in custody are being treated. So there's still a lot to know and understand, to fully understand what's going on. So I'm going to try and round up with an impossibly massive question. So apologies, but we just have to ask... What are the next steps for period campaigning at a grassroots level around the world? It's brilliant. It's just huge, isn't it? 
<laughs> well, in the UK, um, the the period poverty task force has unsurprisingly stopped um, due to the COVID pandemic. And so I guess in the UK, it'd be great to see that starting up again and for the work to continue. Um, period poverty, access to information has only got worse during the pandemic. So we just need to see these things continue to move. Um, and then there are still lo- there's lots of small details that there's so much that needs doing in the UK. So there's still attacks on products like um, period pants. And so w- we still have these really unequal tax laws that need tackling. Globally, it's just huge. There's just so much. There are completely different issues. So say, for example, I met some women from India who were focusing on the issue of taboos around worship and entry into temples when you're menstruating. And that can mean that you may, um, well, you'll face a lot of stigma and taboo, but you also may, for example, not be allowed to attend a funeral. And so the, there's really huge issues there that perhaps in the UK we don't come across. Um, Ethiopia has just had a huge shift and reduced its um, tax on period products. But for some girls, period poverty is so strong that they're using things like cow dung based pads to um, protect themselves. So there's so much around that. Um, there really isn't good quality sex and relationships education um, in you know, almost everywhere. It's such a huge gap. And it's so much something young people are asking for, and that they want to know. So that's got to be one of the really huge changes. And then making sure that periods go on to big picture agendas. So we need governments to talk about it. We need ministers who are taken seriously to talk about it. We need it to appear at things like global platforms, at UN events. It's only when it's put into these kind of serious formal conversations as a realistic and practical issue around physical health and well-being that we'll actually see a shift. And we need it to come from lots of different voices. That's the other thing, is that it just won't work if it's just one particular group or one particular voice. It's got to be all the voices. It's got to be all the challenges. And that, I think, is where we're going to see that really positive shift away from the stigma and taboo and into a conversation about what works, what supports you. These bodies are normal. Menstruating bodies are healthy. Let's treat it like that. And that would be the change I would love to see. Agreed, agreed. That would be beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you so much. I have loved talking to you. Um, And just just to hear the kind of whole range of of job aspects that you've covered, it's, it's really interesting to talk about kind of yeah, the, the sexual health side, the period poverty side. And um, I love the fact that we are stressing how important it is for a diverse voice on this subject. Because um, I, yeah, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fantastic. It's been really wonderful. Brilliant. Thank you. Just, yeah, thank you again. <laughs>